I got into private Bitcoin as a way to make anonymous payments online that were maybe more importantly, uh, evading censorship, not dealing with the absolutely scummy, slimy uh, financial system that we have today, right? All this good stuff, permissionless, person-to-person -person transactions. So that's why I got into uh, private Bitcoin um, you know, a few years ago. And you know, for me, I didn't care about the price. I didn't care about investment. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't understand the value of it that all these people thought it was going to X, you know, dollar amount. And so for me, it was a tool. And then of course I learned about Monero and it was an even better tool. And so, you know, really I found in the last year, there's been a huge uptick in acceptance of Monero. I think it was Molvad that in the last year and a half allowed you to start paying with, with Monero. And I remember just checking back one day and there it was. Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet, a trustless open source wallet that gives you the keys to your crypto. Invoice, donate, and trade your Monero with peace of mind, peace of cake. And by StealthyX, an instant exchange where privacy is a top concern. Go to StealthyX.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making StealthyX a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever by typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or Cake Wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Gabriel Custodiate, host of the Watchman Privacy Podcast. They cover Monero's superiority in terms of privacy and utility, regulatory concerns about privacy tech like Monero and Bitcoin, coin joins, the philosophy behind individual freedom, the need for cultural changes rather than just relying upon freedom tools, and the role of adversarial thinking in protecting privacy. Monero Talk starts now. All right. Gabriel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Douglas. Happy to be here supporting the Monero community. It's obviously a really good one, very useful tool, and happy to be here. In full disclosure to the Monero community and all my listeners, I, I must admit this is our second time recording this show. We we attempted yesterday, and to no fault of my guests at all, uh, there were some technical difficulties, and really, I just felt like uh, the conversation, fault of my fault of my own, uh, I didn't really truly take advantage of the person I'm talking to. I feel like I, I didn't really get to to delve deep enough into your expertise. And I feel like we we got hung up on an issue that really uh, was irrelevant to to where we should be going. So I greatly appreciate you doing the show again. Uh, shows tremendous tremendous amount of uh, dedication on your part. Yeah, no no problem at all. I'm sure people will will speculate if you if we keep them in the dark like that. But uh, maybe maybe <laughs> we'll decide to to open up. But uh, no, ha happy. I, I think. Um, so we were talking about the kind of the samurai wallet stuff and i think it's it's okay to just leave that out of there because uh you know regardless of our our kind of thoughts on on 
them, you know, they're, they're doing their thing and they are who they are. And, you know, we can certainly think of many other things to discuss. So, yeah. 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 Especially with the overall goal of, uh, not, not further creating more friction between samurai and, and other communities. Right. And so we we don't, we don't want to have the opposite effect in having the conversation. I will say though, um, I do want to give you a chance to comment on no para, um, because I think you have, you have good knowledge there and my, my intent was always to kind of get the other side, me not knowing enough about, um, you know, samurai versus wasabi, the differences technically and Nopara's history. So I wanted to give somebody a platform here to kind of retort and bring up what the concerns are. Do you want it? Do, do you mind just covering those concerns? Cause I think you did a really good job at, at breaking down, uh, those reasons yesterday. Sure. Uh, I'm happy to do so. And what's kind of another thing we we're discussing was that TDEV, who's a developer for Samurai Wallet, did not want to to come on Monero Talk uh, because you had no, no para on. And so in Bitcoin privacy, you have to go to extra lengths to take care of your privacy. And a kind of an essential thing is a coin join, which is basically using the Bitcoin blockchain against itself, right? You are putting in a certain, you're putting in UTXOs into basically a transaction and it spits out things, it spits out transactions back to you that very much confuse the people who analyze the blockchain. So the main two implementations are Wasabi Wallet and Samurai Wallet. You also have a join market, which is kind of a, a separate thing, not quite as seamless, not built into a, a wallet. So the issue pertaining to Nopara. Um, so a couple of years ago, the Wasabi wallet tweets out that ZK. So this is this is the literal tweet. So ZK Snacks, and just to insert here, ZK Snacks is the, the legal entity, uh, I believe, who is kind of in charge of Wasabi wallet. So ZK Snacks will start refusing certain UTXOs from registering to coin joints it was a very vague tweet with a, a burning candle in the dark. And so people started scratching their heads. Like, what, what does this mean? So basically what it meant was that Wasabi Wallet was now going to partner with a chain analytic company to vet Bitcoin that was going into the coin join. And if they were part of you know certain lists, they were going to be rejected from using Wasabi Wallet. So this was very confusing for a so-called privacy wallet to be interacting and paying a chain analytics company to do this kind of thing. So immediately, many people stopped using Wasabi Wallet. They stopped. Uh, they gave up their sponsorship. All kinds of stuff. So this was this was one thing that happened with Wasabi. You have other problems which many see as more fundamental. Uh, Wasabi has a different way of doing coin joining, and there have been. And I'll just encourage people to kind of go look into it. I have never done so at, at very great depth because the fact that they're vetting UTXOs is is enough for me never to recommend it. But the there are other problems with their their coin joining uh, that has not been airtight, let's just say, and that has well, people can go look into that. Um, the other thing that the Samurai Wallet team will point out is that Nopara actually doxed the. Uh, the names of Samurai Wallet in an article 
uh, in the last few years, which is really just really slimy behavior. So those are some of the things that we need to recognize with Wasabi Wallet. It's not something that I recommend uh, by any means uh, whatsoever. Um, and yeah, we, we can kind of just leave it at the, the facts like that. But that's kind of the situation uh, with Wasabi Wallet. I appreciate you breaking that down, man, and uh, being being the voice of or representing the samurai community here. I, I know I know there are, there is you know you, you have no you play no official role there, but you obviously follow these technologies very closely, and. Um, I, there, there was concern that I gave uh, Nopara a platform, which we, we won't get into the debate on whether or not there should be concern over uh, me putting people on uh, my so, so-called platform. Um, but I appreciate you getting the other side of the story out. And uh, just anybody who's out there listening uh, should know, I'm sure they already know, all sides are always welcome on the show, especially when it's regarding uh, digital cash tech debate. Um, so, so if you're in the samurai community and you ever want to come on the show, you're, you're more than welcome, but Gabriel, I appreciate you, uh, putting that information out there. This, this leads me, I guess, to now the, you know, the, the, the broader conversation of Bitcoin and Monero. What is your take on these, uh, on these projects? Do you use them both? Do you store your wealth in Bitcoin and then use Monero for transacting? You being a privacy advocate and expert, give us your take there on these, on these projects, on these tools. I got into private Bitcoin specifically, which is a, a very specific thing. It means no KYC. It also means making use of a coin join. And the only one really these days to, to make use of it is Samurai Wallet. And so I got into private Bitcoin as a way to make anonymous payments online that were maybe more importantly, uh, evading censorship, not dealing with the absolutely scummy, slimy uh, financial system that we have today, right? All this good stuff, permissionless, person-to-person -person transactions. So that's why I got into uh, private Bitcoin. Um, you know, a few years ago. And, you know, for me, I didn't care about the price. I didn't care about investment. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I didn't understand the value of it that all these people thought it was going to X, you know, dollar amount. And so for me, it was a tool. And then of course, I learned about Monero and it was an even better tool. And so, you know, really I found in the last year, there's been a huge uptick in acceptance of Monero. I think it was Molvad that in the last year and a half, allowed you to start paying with with Monero. And I remember just checking back one day and there it was, it was now accepting Monero. So there's been a lot more acceptance of Monero, which makes it a lot more useful tool these days. And yeah, so for me, uh, I find these useful tools. I would much rather use Monero these days, obviously, uh, to, to, to spend. In terms of the, the saving argument, so Seth for Privacy has guests on, who's been on my show, Watchman Privacy Podcast, He's fond of saying, you know, save in Bitcoin, spend in Monero. I think there there might be something to that. Um, I don't really overthink this, and I don't really have any hot takes on, you know, what is the intrinsic value of, of crypto. Uh, but I think for the Monero listeners who say, well, I would never touch Bitcoin, it's important to realize that it's always good to have a plan B, right? So it's it's really useful to understand a little bit of private Bitcoin. And you can jump in the, the Ronin Dojo and the Samurai Wallet and the Sparrow Wallet Telegram groups 
and start to learn it a little bit because you never know what can happen and you never know uh, when you might need to use it. And it's best to kind of understand how it works so that you can continue to use these as the tools that they were meant to be, which is private or decently private options to transact without you know, any of the scummy uh, intermediaries who want to stop you from just using a, a, you know, a money. So that's kind of how I see it. What do you see as the difference in terms of utility that or value proposition that each of these tools offer, Bitcoin and Monero? Yeah, I mean, you can't deny Bitcoin's network effect and the sheer amount of belief that people have in, in Bitcoin, right? That is, it, it's hard to imagine that ever going to zero, though I think that the, the crazy laser-eyed people are going to find that the price of Bitcoin might go down someday because the more you get regulatory approval, the less useful, uh, you know, that that tool actually is, right? So um, Monero has all kinds of utility. It's it's easier. It 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 settles more quickly. It's a it's much more private. You don't have to worry about all the coin control for the most part and all this other stuff that uh, that you wouldn't Bitcoin. But you know, Bitcoin has going for it, as I said, the network effect. And we could, you know, we could argue about some of the uh, the development decisions that that it made, um, but I don't. I tend not to get too far down that. Again, uh, I want these to be used as tools. So I accept anything that I sell in Bitcoin or Monero, and I just want to be part of these circular economies. And I mostly talk about how to use these things uh, because that's the only thing that I'm really interested in with uh, with crypto. What advice do you give to people? I mean, you're you're, you're obviously very much uh, extreme in in your privacy, uh, extreme privacy. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure you've read this book, right? Absolutely, of course, I'm Michael sure, Bazell. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've read that book. Every um, every edition, everything he's put out. You're very extreme in, in, in your personal life, in how you've adopted privacy tech. So what advice do you give people with regards to crypto that want to, want to be private? Do you just tell them Monero or do you also tell them Bitcoin? And if so, why and what do you tell them? So the... Advice that I would give people is anywhere, anytime Monero is accepted, for goodness sake, use that, obviously. It is also in your interest to understand Bitcoin for the instances where only Bitcoin is accepted. Maybe you're dealing with somebody who doesn't know Monero, you can't sell them on it, and they're only going to take Bitcoin, so you can, you can do that. Uh, maybe you have this sense that Bitcoin has some kind of intrinsic value, and you just want to hold that. But the important thing, Doug, for privacy is to always go about this with the correct operational security. Running your own node for any of these is huge. Uh, using a VPN is a big deal. I never access the internet outside of a VPN. Tor, anytime you can have something running through Tor or using a web site with the Tor browser, absolutely a must. This is stuff that, you know, we're living in peacetime for crypto right now. It is very, uh, it's very accepted, but these are incompatible with government currencies, to be honest. And so we need to have this adversarial mindset. And to the 
kind of the Bitcoin privacy people, I'll give them credit that they kind of understand this adversarial mindset because they know that they're dealing with something that can trip them up that is transparent. So I do find that there's a lot of interesting people in some of the Bitcoin privacy groups who, by the way, tend not to have any problem with Monero whatsoever. Uh, they're just kind of kind of interested in the technology of Bitcoin and the coin joining and all this kind of interesting stuff. And they're obviously very in tune with our operational security. So yeah, I mean, these are these are kind of the, the fundamentals. Uh, I think that, you know, running your own node, using Tor, uh, using VPNs, and just verifying your software, all this kind of good stuff, absolutely essential. Uh, address reuse, it's more of a problem in Bitcoin, but you want to avoid that. Uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, you have to worry about things like coin control, et cetera. But, you know, just always being cognizant of what you're exposing and just minimizing that, if not for the present, then for the future. This is this is where I get caught in the the samurai Monero conversation. You're kind of pulling me in. Not no fault of yours, but the uh, the adversarial mindset. Um, we, do you think do you think the Monero community has even more of an adversarial mindset uh, among you know the, the average Monero user as opposed to the Bitcoin privacy community, or you see the Bitcoin privacy community as as more uh, adversarial? Yeah, well, I, I don't need to to you know poke at the the Monero folks whatsoever. <laughs> you know, I'm just uh, trying to understand that because this is where I start no, to I, be like I don't really understand why the Bitcoin privacy community has more of that brand when they're actually less adversarial and calculating in their extreme privacy and in and in in the, in their pursuit of. Uh, creating a technology and, and using a technology that can't be co-opted or controlled or surveilled in any way. I feel like the Monero people are like to the point of extreme where it's it almost doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So if if this was just about privacy technology, right? There would, you know, you might say, well, there's there's always the next one. There's there's something more to it. And for Bitcoin, you might call it simply the network effect. Uh, there are a lot of people in in these Bitcoin communities which see, uh, we, which prefer the, like I say, the economic decisions that that Bitcoin makes. I don't know exactly. You know, it, it kind of varies person to person to person. Um, what I was simply saying is that I, I, I think the the Bitcoin people, they kind of wake up and, and they're hardened, right? They they have this sense that okay, we're dealing with something that could be exposing, so we just have to be careful about it. And whereas if you're kind of in Monero land. I, you know, find myself uh, saying sometimes, well, you know, this is private, so you know, do maybe I forget my VPN one time, or I don't bother going through Tor or something like this. So uh, that was kind of the only minor point. But mm. you know, it, it 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 is the case that you can use Bitcoin if you buy Bitcoin in a no KYC manner, you're in pretty good shape. You put that through a coin join, and you have some care about your uh, coin control, and you know it's very unlikely that that is ever going to come back to bite you if you're aware of it. So, you know, is it better to have something that is automatically private? Absolutely. But uh, these people in the Bitcoin privacy community in the Bitcoin privacy communities use Bitcoin uh, quite privately. And it's certainly possible to do that. It's, it is, it is some work, but uh, yeah, it's, it's not like Bitcoin's not a surveillance coin. It's not surveillance city. If you go out the right way. And so that's why you can kind of have your, your, you know, your, your, your feet in between both worlds, uh, you know, have a plan B, 
uh, be able to kind of swap back, back and forth depending on what people are looking for. So yeah, I, I, uh, I'm comfortably happy to be in, in both worlds, even if these days, especially with the bloat in the, the blockchain uh, recently, or, or rather in the, uh, the cost to transact on Bitcoin in the last year because of ordinals, whereas a Monero transaction is, is pennies to do, uh, it's a much better spending tool. And the statistics bear that out. I released an episode with coin cards today. And I think you said that Monero transactions are 28%. Bitcoin was like 39%. Lightning was was almost zero. So that's pretty impressive for a coin with a, a much smaller uh, you know, network effect, uh, market cap, whatever, whatever you want to say. So yeah, Monero is a vastly superior spending tool, 100%. What, what is some advice you would give to the Monero community, people that are listening into this show, things that we can do to perhaps um, be more adversarial? Um, what, what's some advice you would give to the Monero community? Yeah, uh, and again, I'm not, I'm, not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. I think, I think things are, are pretty good. I just would encourage people to always, you know, look into Monero, right? Um, what makes Monero private? What are the technologies? Just spend a little bit of time looking at that. Um, don't just assume, hey, this is private and will forever be private. If that was the case, there wouldn't be you know hard forks that were kind of being considered on the horizon. So just be cognizant of that. Always have your operational security in check. And yeah, I, I, I would just say that. I think um, when it comes to any any advice I, I would give for people in either community, I would just say, let's let's make these Let's use these, let's use these, let's accept these, let's spread the word because the network effect is really what makes a money succeed or not succeed. So that's also a big focus. Any any advice, that, I know it's the million dollar question, but any advice there on how we can grow the usage? I know I, I'm out here every week on this show and then on the live Monerotopia show telling people, let's use it, let's use it, giving examples of it, pointing people to resources. We're building XMR Bazaar, which uh, tends on being a peer-to-peer Monero-based marketplace. But anything that you can think of um, like that would, that would be great advice for, for anybody that's on board with that, that notion, what, what we can do together as a community to help make it happen. Well, you would obviously know a lot better than I would, Doug, and, and you're doing great work to to spread that word. Uh, the only thing that I might say is if, you, if you're if you trying to spread the word, try to maybe approach it a, a little bit of, of a different way. We do we do know that people don't really care about privacy, but if you sell it as, hey, you're not going, you'll get your PayPal account shut down for no reason whatsoever, that's not going to happen with Monero. So if you change the wording and say, hey, you can you can transact, uh, outside of the you know government's approval, outside of the banking approval, and you show s- different scenarios uh, to people who are, let's say, skeptical of the banking system or the government, that can be another just little way to get people into it and just say, hey, look, you can put your, you can put a Monero address on your website and have people pay you, and there's nothing on earth that can stop that. Uh, that's another powerful way I've found of trying to convince people to j- jump on board. Ultimately, big picture. Do you do you feel that we we can win? I mean that you know enough of us can opt out and move into these into this world of privacy tools and, and using Monero and Bitcoin privacy tools to 
transact daily and c- kind of create our our own society do you do you think there's enough momentum there and it's ca- we're, we're capable of doing this or is it a, is it a pipe dream it might be possible i don't think these are ever going to be mass adopted i don't think we necessarily want them to in some respects, but they're certainly not going to be mass adopted uh, if they are a competition to the state. Now, you can say, well, maybe if enough people are using the tool, then it kind of tilts the, you know, the culture in, in one direction or another. That's certainly a possibility. But uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, Douglas. I, um, I've gotten this trying to carve out a little bit more freedom and privacy for myself and for the the select few who understand these things. And try to spread the word, but maybe at the end of the day, it's just going to be one of those things uh, left for the, the the dark alleys of the internet and people who <laughs> like it and and want to use it will, will certainly have an avenue. Uh, Bitcoin, Satoshi opened Pandora's box in the sense that you can have something that is that has the properties of money and that's easy to transact with. And we're never going to, and of course the the, the blockchain, the ability to have these, uh, these entities, these, um, you know, uh, entries that are non-replicable. That was a, a an immense uh, technological advance. And so we're, we're always going to have these, but yeah, maybe it will just be a, a few people using it back and forth and maybe that's okay too. Yeah. I, I, I hear that notion expressed a lot, like, you know, and I guess probably it is from the Bitcoin privacy communities, uh, this idea of maybe we, we don't want it to go mainstream. Uh, once again, I guess this is where, where I would like uh, question and, and maybe disagree or try to understand um, why. Why wouldn't we want as many people as possible using Monero? Yeah, I, I think it's just, sure, uh, as many people using Monero as possible. What happens when the when everybody gets their hands on it, right, is that, well, I mean, first of all, people can't get their hands on it, right, because you can't just go to Coinbase and, and, and buy your Monero. So... Already we see Monero is, you can only track it down in, in certain ways. And so all, right away, uh, I think we can see that it's it's only for the people who know how to get a peer-to-peer or who have their, whatever, is it still Kraken that, that still has it listed? Uh, I forget. So it's, yep. it's going to be a word of mouth thing and a person to person thing. And so I don't know that that can, and, and, and that's not a bad thing, you know? That's not a bad thing by any means. That just shows that the powers that be uh, see that it works. The IRS can't crack it, and they're very upset about that. They're very displeased by that, and so they're going to ban it. And when you ban it, uh, there's simply not going to be mass adoption. It's hard to imagine that that could be the case, right? Are we really going to find people who know how to use websites like KYCNot.me, and they're going to have a transaction with somebody who is, and, and you'll trade some fiat for Monero or something like this? Um, I, I just don't see it happening. And yeah, it, it requires a certain, uh, a, a certain amount of, of expertise in operational security that, uh, is just not, not out there with the masses. So, so you think they're going to bet, you think they'll ban Monero in, in the U S uh, they might, uh, I think it's Dubai that you, that I learned from you basically said, yeah, you can't use privacy coins in, uh, in Dubai. Now, like how can they stop somebody using Monero peer to peer? They can't obviously, but they can shut down the on and off ramps. And that certainly does a, a lot of work for the, the normies. Um, and yeah, they're just never going to know about it. They're never going to get into it. Um, 
I don't want to be too pessimistic. Maybe we can convince people, <laughs> right? Maybe I, I would love to convince people and, you know, talk to family. And I just did a presentation with a, a bunch of, I guess, normies the other week and say, hey, look, look how awesome this is. Uh, and yeah, you know, they can get into it too, but it's going to require a lot of work and I don't think it will spread. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans. And if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, gratuitous, and Monero. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously optimistic, right? I wouldn't be here, and I, I guess you wouldn't be here talking about the things you talk about either, right? If you weren't, I, would, I wouldn't have this, whoa, this optimistic uh, imagery in my background, right? Um, I, I, think, I think there is a way. I think, I think ultimately, if it comes down to it, uh, Monero won't, won't be banned in the U.S. I don't, I don't think there's constitutional grounding there, and obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that that are, are technically unconstitutional that end up coming to pass. But I think it will be a, a, a I think there'd be enough momentum uh, on the side of, of, of pro free speech that they, they wouldn't be able to, to ban it. Maybe they could effectively try, try to ban it, right. By making it difficult for, for exchanges to interface with it or people to interface with it. But I don't think there'd actually ever be a ban. Um, and you know, if there is, then obviously I'm optimistic in in the other route where okay, well, I guess we just have to use it amongst ourselves, um, you know, sim similar to how we've seen with with other tools and other bands. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. I think you're I think you're you're right about it, all of that. Yeah, and I think if if it will survive anywhere, it'll be the United States, which, despite all the travesties of uh, American freedoms. It still remains a, a pretty awesome place in terms of, of freedom. And the Constitution, while under assault, is still uh, respected by enough, at least, that it's, it's not going to, you know, we're not going to be a uh, third world totalitarian country too soon. Yeah, I, I certainly hope not. Um, although it's, it's, it's like boiling a frog, right? Um... How about outso how about Bitcoin privacy tools? I mean, so do you do you have a similar concern there that those will also potentially be banned or you know whatever effectively banned? Potentially. So this is where the crazy laser-eyed maxis who have these just bizarre uh, cult-like um, tendencies where they think that. Right. I, I, I make the joke. It's like you go to a, a Bitcoin website and they're just talking about how, you know, 21 million is this magical number that God hard coded into the center of the universe for centrifugal stability or some nonsense like this. Meanwhile, these people don't even use Bitcoin to transact. They just think that it has some magical value outside of its ability to transact and the number is just going to go up. And the thing is, the only value that I really see in something like Bitcoin is the fact that you can send it back and forth, that you can transact. And so at some point, that number is going to come crashing down when you know, people realize that it, it doesn't have value uh, besides that. And if it ever got to that point where people 
uh, recognized that that was the only value. And so they, they started using it to transact. Well, that's when you could see, let's say the government uh, kind of treat it like Monero and say, okay, um, you know, people have stopped believing in Bitcoin as an investment. Uh, it's back to being a, you know, a, a threat to uh, the, the fiat system. Um, so we're going to ban it like Monero. But, you know, the, the weird thing about Bitcoin is that it has all these people. It has all this institutional clout, Bitcoin ETFs, et cetera. I don't know what value they see in, in Bitcoin, like these people who are buying ETFs where you don't even own any Bitcoin. It's absolutely crazy. It's just a bubble uh, that that a huge part of Bitcoin is just this crazy, crazy bubble that we're in. And the actual use case is uh, used by very few. Um, so, yeah, maybe I've, I've kind of wandered off the question, but yeah, I, uh, I guess I was yeah. more focused on like uh, right even recently. Right. It's not even uh, theoretical. We saw we saw FinCEN proposed rules for Bitcoin mixing. Um, and actually, uh, yeah, we saw, we saw that happen, right? And it hasn't passed yet, but that's a very real move that the government is making towards potentially, you know, looking to ban these things, right? Now, they weren't proposing to ban it. They're proposing rules where uh, financial institutions would essentially have to file reports with FinCEN if it's believed that a Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency mixing tool was was used uh, by a customer right before it was sent to an exchange, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean, know, knowing that, right? Uh, what what's your thinking there? Do you think that they effectively tried to ban Bitcoin privacy tools? Yeah. So the the best Bitcoin privacy tool is non non custody. And if you use it that in that way, what shows up on the blockchain is, is simply random addresses paying one another. And so you can you can actually go pretty far um, with that. But yeah, sure, the, the coin joins are a great tool for confusing confusing the blockchain, right? And making it so that you hit a certain point when you're tracking things on the blockchain where, okay, you can kind of make assumptions like this may have come from here, but you cannot say for 100% certain. Um, it has no deterministic, clear deterministic link. And then you can, of course, keep doing these coin joins and causing confusion. Now, I know that Samurai Wallet is has high on their list of things to do. Making the coordinator of the coin joins a, um, a decentralized uh, sort of thing. So um, if uh, so, I, I, I do think that we are, are close to having kind of all aspects of that. Uh, it's already not non-custodial. Um, and so I, I think that we're close or Samurai Wallet is close to um, kind of solving the problem of this can't really be regulated uh, feasibly. And I know as well that they are they have in the past Samurai Wallet. This is one reason why I, uh, I give them the tip of the cap, because they have left countries that they've been in in the past when I think it was the UK threatened was threatening to ban uh, self-custody uh, wallets. And so they actually moved out of Britain and maybe they would continue to do yeah. that. Um, until they can get kind of things completely set up where they're outside of the the reach of the regulators. And it's open source, you know, it's free and open source software. So if not them, then, you know, the next people. So I have some faith that the coin joins will, will be with us in, in Bitcoin for as long as is needed. Uh, let me... Let me ask you, yeah, so you bring up the coin joins, and uh, once again, obviously, I don't follow this very closely, right? I, I, I just use Monero. Um, I, I looked back at my old interview that I had with Samurai from two years ago, and it was when they were first announcing um, that there would be Bitcoin 
to Monero atomic swaps. And it was actually a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, I recommend people go check that out, actually, if they want to want to hear hear a good conversation and, and samurai's uh, samurai, not samurai dev. I don't know what to call it, the samurai wallet guy, what his point of view is with regards to Monero. Um, and it, it was great. But one of the things he, he had brought up at that time, and I haven't been following the evolution since, is that coin joints are, in fact, identifiable. Um, right. So you're you're not you're. You're you're not erasing all the history, so it's it's known that a coin join happened. Uh, is that no longer the case? And if so, what, what changed? No, that that's still the case, right? When you're when you're surveying the the blockchain, you can see oh, this Bitcoin suddenly now went into a transaction with with five or with four other uh, UTXOs, and what got spit out were five UTXOs of identical value. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's clearly a, a coin join on the on the blockchain. Now it's getting to the point where most or or many transactions in Bitcoin, uh, most UTXOs have a history of coin join because it's just you know, it's like you have your your cash and you give it to the person at whatever Kroger, and maybe the maybe two two stops ago it was in a drug dealer's hands, right? And it has trace cocaine on it or something. Well, you know, it's not your responsibility. That's kind of just how. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, almost all cash has, you know, trace amounts of cocaine. So there's that argument that, um, you know, good luck uh, starting to discriminate against coin joins when most uh, UTXOs have a history of it. Uh, Samurai Wallet has other tools where basically you just send it to uh, a successive amount of, of single addresses. And so on the blockchain, now it just looks like, okay, there was a coin join, but that was five steps ago. Is that really as suspicious as, you know, do you really want to start banning uh, UTXO if it was five, um, you know, five transactions ago? So there's there's other tools in the, uh, um, in their, uh, in their quiver, so to speak. So uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not too concerned uh, about it. Obviously, Monero is a lot simpler, a lot easier. But uh, yeah, for for people listening in Monero and they're like, yeah, what you know, this this stuff sounds weird. Um, it is possible <laughs> to. It is possible to 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 have your uh, anonymity uh, in Bitcoin. There's, uh, you know, it's not again, it's not a surveillance coin, um, and it's actually kind of interesting when you just kind of look at it intellectually. Some of the the tools that are available to use the blockchain surveillance against itself. Yeah, I often call it a surveillance coin, um, and I haven't been convinced otherwise. I mean, well, I, so, I, I respect yeah. I respect the Bit what Bitcoin privacy tools are doing to try to. Um, you know, get get around the nature of Bitcoin, but fundamentally, it's it's a transparent ledger, um, right? But I, if I uh, if I get some some no KYC Bitcoin from somewhere, and I buy a Molvad subscription, and you know, um, you know, buy something else, nobody mm -hmm. can nobody knows that's me. You know, nobody in the world knows that that is me. So um, there, there it, it's possible to to have some anonymity, um, and uh, so yeah. Definitely, definitely is possible, but kind of dangerous. And if if you mess up or leave some other kind of breadcrumb along the way, the pieces could be put back together, right? I mean, even even with Monero, there there right, there's heuristics that can be used, uh, even with with cash itself, right? So uh, the the more more flaws that the that the tool has, the the harder it is to to not be a victim of those flaws. Um, 
let's just jump to another another topic, just kind of big picture again. So, given that you know, uh, you know, we're talking about being adversarial um, and 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 the need to be aware of what we're up against here. Do you think we should? be political, right? Like I, I ran for, for Congress here in New York and a big part of really the the main reason I ran was because I saw the writing on the wall with regards to where this stuff was going and potential banning. And I, I wanted somebody to be on the floor of Congress to make the pro free speech money argument, all the reasons why it aligns with, with, with the constitution and aligns with the, the ideals that the United States was founded upon. Do you think that we should be doing those types of things or we should take more of the cypherpunk approach only uh i think i think we should do a hybrid but do you think we should take the cypherpunk approach only and kind of you know just build the tools make them unstoppable and and don't try to even you know interface with our with our overlords here yeah so obviously i'm a big proponent of routing around the state and just trying to be off the grid and all these kind of good things. It is the case, though, as as you kind of referenced there, Doug, that it would be great if we lived in society where we didn't have to do that stuff, right? So if we lived in the uh, the early years of America, even let's say the first century of America, you had a federal government that didn't really have any power and you didn't have any restrictions on your gun uh, ownership and you had very few taxes and there were no surveying entities for the most part. And it was a, a nice um, place to be a, a free human being. And if you have a society like that, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't need to be talking on, you know, dark corners of the internet about, you know, various, various tools and having Tor and all the rest. Um, I don't ever want to get rid of these tools. I think they're, they're essential. Um, but I do recognize that there's a bigger fight here. And that is having a society where privacy is simply acceptable, like it was, let's say, in the United States in the first hundred years. And uh, that is a, a fight. Um, is that a political fight? Or um, I tend to think that politics is, is downstream from, from culture. So, um, you know, we need to, I think, just be be better humans. Be uh, learn to to trust our, our our neighbors and have local communities and, and solve things at the local level. And um, yeah, basically a combination of these things. Um, I'm not giving up the privacy tools. I'll, I'll keep uh, using them and, and teaching people how to use them. Um, but I I don't know that you know using VPNs and Tor is going to solve kind of the underlying problem. Um, which is cultural and sure political I think politics is an expression of, of our cultures. We get the governments that we deserve. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. And I, and I love that idea. And you talked about it very eloquently yesterday. So let, let, let's get into that a little bit more, if you don't mind, I think that's a kind of a great thread to pull upon and, it, and it's a big idea. Um, what do you mean by that, that, uh, you know, we get, we got to change the the culture, perhaps even, you know, more so than, than the politics, right? That politics is downstream from the culture. Culture is where it's at. How do, how do we change the culture and what does it need to be changed to? Yeah. So it's a good question. Um, and there's the argument that it's hard to you know, go back to where we were, but I guess if you just were to rewind, let's let's talk about America. If you were to rewind America for 
200 years, let's say, you have a, a, a people who did not have a large government because they were self-sufficient and they were not litigious, right? They solved things in their local community. Let's say they had a religious network where their, you know, their church or whatever uh, was able to solve problems, which today we might offload to uh, the state, the local state, or or the the county and and the you know the, the state and the, and the federal government. Um, you know, there there are one out of three hundred people in the U.S. is a lawyer, so it's uh you know um, we have uh, abandoned many things uh, that made uh, early Americans, let's say. Uh, not need a, a large federal government. Uh, people were not, uh, people were ashamed to be on welfare back then, or, or would be ashamed by the concept of welfare. They took care of these things themselves, right, through their churches and, and what have you. Whereas today, we just assume, yeah, that's the government's responsibility. Meanwhile, the government is happy to take that responsibility and just get larger and larger and larger. So I guess I think if we look at any government overreach today, we can track that down to we gave up responsibility for something at, at some point. And as with any kind of uh, entity with monopolistic power on force, if you give them more power, it's simply going to enlarge and it's going to take more and more, uh, more and more power uh, for itself. So simple solution or uh, obvious solution is opt out, right? Opt out, build our, build our own circular economy, circular in, society, right? Where, where we, uh, are no longer a part of the quote unquote matrix where we're spoon fed information and propaganda and just kind of rebuild there. I'm a big fan of these things. And you might just kind of think of all your interactions with the state, right? And see, Hey, what if I just did this differently? You have trash, right? That is a city service. Well, what would I do with my trash if I didn't have them, right? Uh, they're not doing the roads. Well, what if I you know, patched up the, the roads myself? My neighbor's causing me a problem. Well, instead of calling the police, why don't I go over there and, and talk to them um, and try to work it out our, ourselves? Maybe our, you know, our local area has some solutions that we don't need to rely on, on certain utilities. So if you just think about it in that way, I, I do think ultimately uh, those are just the kind of the um, the philosophical solutions to the predicament we're on but you know I'm willing to uh, consider all tools because I don't imagine that we're necessarily going to change things and so let's uh, let's not give up our monero and uh, and tor browser or, or VPNs just yet and I, and I'm kind of asking the same question again but do you think it's it's ultimately futile or there there is a chance for us as a society to uh, reinvent our culture and get back to the quote unquote good old days uh, when everybody understood uh, the importance of liberty, when people understood it was a, a God, quote unquote God given given uh, concept right? Where we're not asking government to provide it to us, but we know that it's something that every human is born with. Do you think we're, it's possible for us to move the needle in that direction to a large enough degree where we actually change things? Maybe possible, but unlikely. And it's going to require us to give up many of the uh, 
yeah, without getting too, uh, without uh, offending too many people, I, I think we, I think that, uh, yeah, you know, no, go, up, please, please offend. Okay. Go ahead. Giving yeah. up, giving up feminism, right? Giving up all kinds of things that are products of the last hundred year cultural things that have, I think, uh, led to the uh, led to the problem. So, uh, de- so yeah, is deprogramming, it, is it, right? De- deprogramming, deprogramming. Um, you know, this this idea that uh, we want more and more people to have the vote and younger and younger uh, was not a product of the original American founders. They despise democracy, uh, in fact, and write nothing about democracy in the founding documents. So, yeah, I mean, it it would be a, a serious um, a serious endeavor. It would require individual responsibility at the end of the day. And, yeah, I don't know how to instill that in people. But uh, sure, I'll be somewhat idealistic and say it's possible, but unlikely. And it seems like what we're up against has uh, ultimate ultimate power and 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 control at this point. Um, yes, we have these tools, these amazing new tools that were invented, cryptocurrency and, and Tor and all these things. But it does seem like what we're up against is is an all powerful thing that is uh, exponentially gaining power by the day. Uh, because of the way it's built with this constant feedback loop of everybody tuned in and tuned into the, you know, basically plugged into the matrix and being programmed uh, and reprogrammed and controlled. What do you think is what, what ultimately, what do you believe we are up against? Is this just a natural product of evolution that we're just up against technology or is there something more sinister is there some force that's looking to control humanity and is using technology to do it that was a a polite way of saying are you a conspiracy theorist or not but um i (laughs) (laughs) i i entertain what what is your theory you know what is your theory right uh yeah so yeah what theories do you have well yeah, I don't know that I have anything too profound. I, I went into this um, just assuming the the absolute worst, quote unquote, threat model possible. That's why I don't really talk about threat models. I just think you should assume the, the absolute worst and, and go for broke, basically. Uh, whether or not you think that we're controlled by a select group of people or that there's an agenda to purposefully remove testosterone uh, from human males or whatever, it doesn't matter in a certain sense because I and my techniques that I talk about on my show and elsewhere and the things I encourage people to do are for the most part acceptable to combat all of those things. So um, yeah, I, I don't know that uh, I don't know if it's um, you know purposefully malicious or if it's an accident. I do know and I have a good episode called Privacy and Psychopaths that there's a about one percent of the population who maybe makes up 10% of the government, who literally has the inability to see others as anything but uh, means to an end, who literally does not have a conscience and uh, is is morally bankrupt and wants to control people. And that the influence of these people has increased, uh, the more centralization has increased. And we see that psychopaths have altered world history, whether that's Stalin, et cetera. You have a basically a different species of human that uh, and this is scientific. This is not even conspiracy theory. This is just mm-hmm. the yeah, basics I talk, I talk of, about the of psychopathy. Psychopathy, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, this is a, this is a group of people, 
and they do exist and, and they do exert control in corporations and, and the government. And yeah, I mean, I don't need to look so much at the news these days. I just assume, okay, I know that there are psychopaths. I know that they're drawn to power. I know that they uh, encourage others around them who are not psychopaths to kind of think similarly. And yeah, I, I kind of uh, assume the worst and, and prepare for the worst. And that's just how I go about it. I would be, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in trying to get to the bottom of all this, but I don't know that we ever will. So it uh, doesn't mean I won't stop trying, but I don't, yeah, don't really have very elevated thoughts about what is the, you know, who's the real enemy, basically. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, because it is just conjecture, right? Uh, but I, I guess if we could know, we'd certainly want to know, because I think that would motivate a, a lot you know, a lot more people to, to be up in arms about it, which is sure. literally what we need. Um, and yeah, I... I, I I, I I often talk about this, you know, this concept of psychopaths, right? It's, it's been around forever since humans were human. There was always a, a, a psychopath lurking somewhere. Uh, but historically, we've, we've always been able to topple them. Uh, but the issue now is they have uh, it, uh, an amazing amount of power at their fingertips with technology. And like you said, with the centralized systems that they control. Um, so it's it's a question of can can we topple them um yeah so you're right that we've had psychopaths throughout human history uh shakespeare talks about um is it iago in his uh in his play anyway he calls it a motiveless malignity and so yeah psychopaths are a they're basically a, a separate species uh, of humans and yeah um in our our current organization where we have such centralization. We have tools like the internet, which on the one hand are freeing, but can also be uh, means for, for control. And we ha we know so much more about psychological manipulation, how human minds work, which is on the one hand a blessing, but it also allows people to be controlled as we saw during the uh, the last three years. So yeah, there's so many more means to, to control people. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, the, the expression, psychopathy is actually an interesting thing for people to look into. And again, I would encourage people to check out my episode first, um, Privacy and Psychopaths, because there is, on the one hand, it is a biological thing, right? They have different, um, basically different chemicals in the brain that ensure that they do not see the world or they do not have the same emotions as, as humans do. Um, but there is also a cultural component to it. And um, for example, they claim that there are many more times the amount of psychopaths in the West as in the East, right? As in Asian countries. And the, the theory behind that, exactly, yeah, narcissism and um, selfishness to a, a negative degree. I, I'm pro-selfishness, right? I'm an Ayn Randian, but uh, selfishness to a uh, kind of a, a toxic degree. And so there is a cultural expression of, of psychopathy. Um, and yeah, they, they certainly bloom a lot more in the, uh, in, in our current cultural climate, but uh yeah, can we wrest control from their hands? Uh, I do see a lot of people waking up, and uh, you know, time will tell. Do you think uh, uh, Ayn Rand would be a, a Monero Monero user? <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing about Ayn Rand was that she was not a, a uh, an anarchist, an anarchist, and so yeah. she thought, yeah, and so um, the 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 fiat, the inflation, was not as as big a problem in, in her day. And so she doesn't talk so much about that. She's so honed in on individuals who are absolutely on, you know, 
pursuing their purpose. And most of the time that was architectural or um, entrepreneurial that uh, I can, I can see her not really caring. Um, mm. It's kind of hard to imagine her not caring about, you know, fiat money, the fiat money scam, but uh, yeah. I don't know. Um, there, there, there's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, but. And so uh, I guess we, we could kind of bring this, this full circle here um, or kind of talk where we probably should have started, which was how, how did you get into all of this? I mean, uh, you're, you're a privacy guru. Was it that crypto took you down this road or you were already previously going down that road and that's how you bumped into Bitcoin privacy tools and Monero? What was kind of your arc to, to getting to this place? So it's no mistake that the, the brand started during COVID. And I have my nice little warning on my Amazon listing for my privacy guide about, you know, click here to learn more about COVID. I think it's because I titled one of my chapters COVID-1984. Uh, but that's just a that's just a theory. So thank you, Amazon, for uh, uh, having the fact checkers on top of that. Um, but so it's it's no mistake that the brand started during COVID, and for me it was simply I recognized the importance of individual freedom, and I finally developed a a political spine right or a philosophical spine, and I became uh, at the time uh, libertarian. I'm probably even more extreme now, and I thought that privacy was maybe not talked about enough at the time. Uh, the people who were talking about privacy were, in some cases, oddly communist, especially on the privacy Reddit, and that rubbed me very much the wrong way. They were afraid of Facebook, but not so much their their own governments. And so I started the brand as a, as, honestly, you know, as a way to create something, have a, you know, a, uh, uh, you know, create something, a, a business, and give people value, and you know, hopefully get some value in return. So that, honestly, that was kind of the the main motivation. In the process, I found that there was a whole lot to talk about in the realm of privacy that others were not talking about, whether that was the the philosophy of privacy or, uh, yeah, I quickly got into uh, the crypto aspect of it, which certain people were not talking about in the privacy sphere, which is silly, you know, at, at this point in time. Um, and, yeah, uh, so there wasn't, there wasn't like a triggering event, right, uh, you know, a Batman kind of. Uh, parents die event that, that made me interested in, in privacy. It was just a, a slow accumulation. And I, I you know, decided one day, you know, I can create stuff that's useful to people. So on my the Watchman Privacy podcast, I, I interview people uh, who develop privacy tools. And you know, we, we don't just talk about digital stuff. We talk about physical privacy uh, a whole lot and, and legal privacy and legal structures and, you know, how to you know learn privacy from people who have been homeless and all kinds of interesting things. And uh, yeah, now it's just become a kind of a little bit of an obsession. Uh, maybe I go a little bit too far, but uh, I think a lot of people appreciate my style and that I try to cover all aspects of privacy, not just one aspect of it, and that I lean into the politics and the philosophy. And yeah, so it's it's kind of developed a, uh, Watchman Privacy has, has developed a personality of its own for sure. And I'm, I'm sure it's been a liberating experience, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Not just to have a, you know, a, a means to be in some sense independent from all of the financial nonsense in, in the world, but to, yeah, of course, um, I practice what I preach. So um, like the, on my Twitter profile right now, the pin tweet is showing some of my statistics. You know, I, I have, um, you know, not connected my name to the place that I've been going to sleep at at night for the last four years, uh, VPN usage, 100% cash only, all these kind of things. And it has been liberating 
the just the sheer minimalism is another aspect that I talk about pertaining to privacy. You know, it's not about yeah, it's 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 not about having more things, having more encrypted messengers. It's actually about having fewer. Um, so I have some kind of counterintuitive takes on privacy uh, that I often bring out. But yeah, it's been liberating to um, kind of escape certain aspects of, of the system and also to just practice minimalism and, and realize that you can actually get by with being almost a neo-Luddite these days. Obviously, I learned the technology, but that doesn't mean I, I rely on it every day. So yeah, it's been a, it's been liberating in many respects. I'm smiling because that's very much my my nature as well. Uh, you know, we, we touched on it yesterday. Uh, one of the fondest moments in my life was when I I broke my cell phone out out of college. Uh, it was after I graduated, and I just started my my kind of my first full time job, and my cell phone broke. I mean, this is this is many years ago. This is pre pre smartphone, but we're still tethered to our phones at that time, texting and whatnot, and uh, a week went by, I didn't fix it. Two weeks went by, two months, and I ended up going an entire year without it. And it was just, it was just great. Uh, I was just checking my voicemail to get back. You know, if, if, if the call wasn't important enough, they would leave a voicemail. Otherwise, I guess they didn't really need to get to me. And it just, it, uh, it gave me so much, so much time and ability to focus on things and to focus on my, my own thoughts. Um, I, I have, I've always been the type of guy like detethered, you know, haven't had a TV. Well, I have, have a TV in my house, but kind of like got rid of, got rid of cable. One of the, one of the early people, like, you know, not, not, not have cable or anything, right. Just, uh, use the internet and get information from, from that. Um, and it's, it's definitely liberating. It's, it's kind of ironic that we live in these modern times and we have all these tools that can do these things for us, but it ends up being quite exhausting right? We, it, it, because it's, it's so overwhelming and all of them are, are, all of these things are fighting for our time and stealing it. I agree. Uh, and this is also something I, I talk about. I, I talk about lifestyle stuff. I have a, a couple good episodes. One, two that come to mind, Jason is a private person and escaping the culture industry. And we just talk about, yeah, how do we become ends in ourselves as, as human beings and not reliant on all this technology, which in most cases is not actually progressive. Like we don't need all this stuff. Uh, it's not actually making us um, better humans. I take more steps without a fitness tracker than if I had one. Um, I'm more productive without productivity software. Um, yeah, it's a, it, 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 in many cases it, it's a trap and we need to be careful about what is actual good technology and what is just a distraction. All right, Gabriel, man, thank you so much. Uh, this is fantastic, and uh, I greatly appreciate you letting me have you twice. Uh, I think this is a much better product here. Uh, once again, no fault of yours on that first go around. That, that was all me. Uh, and so greatly appreciate it, and uh, thank you, man. My pleasure. Uh, Watchman Privacy pod uh, Podcast, and you'll, you know, it's free, and you'll find everything else you want to from there. So, yeah, it's been my pleasure, and... Uh, Hope to talk again. Yeah, cheers. Uh, maybe we could get you to jump on a Monerotopia show one of these days. That, that would be nice, too. Absolutely. Uh, looking forward to uh, spreading the word with Monero. It's a huge tool, a big proponent. Everything I do, I accept Monero, and uh, I give back in Monero. So, yep. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you. Cheers. Hi, Monero Land. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. 
We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube, Odyssey, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to MoneroTalk.live for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever by typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or CakeWallet send address field to send us a tip. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week.